Hi, everyone, and welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. How will tax policy shake out in 2022? In PwC's just-released tax policy outlook, our policy team breaks down the issues, factors, and future developments that will shape tax policy in 2022. The conversation you're about to hear was filmed on January 26th as a Policy on Demand episode in our Washington, D.C. studio with Rohit Kumar, Janice Mays, and Kevin Levingston. And now, here's the conversation. Janice and Rohit, welcome. Thanks for having us. I want to point out that a lot of factors go into writing the outlook. And this year, as in the last two years, some of those factors were highly unusual. A pandemic, a presidential election, and an unpredictable business environment. This year is no exception with the same factors, but a midterm election rather than a presidential election. Could you both talk about some of the themes and the issues that really highlight this year ahead? Uh, Janice, can we start with you? Absolutely. This document is called Managing Constant Change. It approaches all of the different possible changes in state, U.S., and international tax, tax and trade policy. And there's a lot going on in both areas. Technological disruptions continue. Fractured geopolitics, we're seeing those every day in the headlines. Long-term pandemic effects still remain and will continue. Environmental, social, and government's concerns are all out there. One of my favorite highlights in this document is the understandable analysis of the economy and all of the difficult problems with inflation and what happens now and going forward. Business is going to need to be able to address all of these as it tries to thrive and as it attempts to find opportunities to grow in the future. Every one of these continues a disruption. Oh, that's great, Janice, thank you. Rohit, anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean, it's really, to, to me, the name of the game is uncertainty and how do you plan through the uncertainty, right? We have domestic uncertainty with tax policy changes, maybe, maybe not, regulatory changes, right? Recent FTC, foreign tax credit regs that are take a somewhat maybe exotic theory um, of the case, you've got international uncertainty, what's happening at the OECD, will the rest of the world or won't they or when will they make uh, these changes? And then we have just the political uncertainty. If we do have midterm elections coming up in November, is there going to be a change of control in one chamber or both? And what does that mean about policy going forward? And, and how might that even implicate policy between now and those elections? Yeah, <laughs> a lot on the horizon. Well, with that, you, you mentioned the, the midterm elections, maybe turning to that uh, you know, let's let's get into those and how we're expecting the balance of power to shake out, you know, with the caveat that we're saying today or what we're saying today is probably going to evolve quite a bit as developments unfold over the next several months. Uh, but before going to the details of that row hit, uh, could you first talk about the significance of the midterm elections? What could the results tell us, depending on how they well, effectively they turn out? So. Yeah, I mean, look, the significance of the elections is does the administration have uh, a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate? Can they continue to prosecute their agenda if they do? Right, if Democrats keep the House and the Senate, then while we are going through a reconciliation bill exercise, build back better right now, it opens up the possibility of another reconciliation bill, not in 2022, but maybe in 2023 or 2024, you know, another bite at the apple to make fairly sweeping changes with just the votes of one party. And what we've seen over the last, really ever since 1994, which was the last time we had a bipartisan reconciliation bill, that was welfare reform under President Clinton, um, big architectural change in the system generally comes when one party has the House, the Senate, and White House and can fit those changes um, into a budget reconciliation measure. Think Affordable Care Act, 2009-2010, 
Trump tax cuts 2017, even Bush tax cuts 2001, um, and now Build Back Better here in uh, 2021 and now 2022. So, I mean, that's the, the consequence. The flip side, of course, is if there's a change in control, then the sort of major domestic policy legislative initiatives are basically over. There will be some stuff in the middle. My old boss, Mitch McConnell, likes to talk about playing between the 40-yard lines um, and hopefully not shutting down the government, not defaulting on our debt, just kind of doing the basic housekeeping that will be necessary to keep things going. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you know, thinking about that, the, the Democrats, right, they, they may or may not have uh, much time left uh, controlling the House, the Senate, and the, uh, and the White House. So given that, uh, let's talk about where things are going. What do you think it's going to take? What's going to, you know, as we're looking at what may tilt things one way or the other uh, coming into November elections, uh, you know, for the Democrats or for the Republicans, what do you see as the key factors there? Yeah, so I'll talk about what I think the Republicans can do to maximize their chances. I'm going to turn to Janice to see yeah, what Democrats can do to, to kind of buoy their spirits. Um, on the Republican side, it's a, a couple of things. It is uh, really it comes down to primarily um, taking advantage of the national mood, right? Now, the national mood is not currently in favor of the president and Democrats by extension. And that means recruiting good candidates, nominating credible candidates uh, for the general election. Like Republicans have, you know, by their likes, an unfortunate history over the last several years of nominating people who can't win the general election. And you see this most acutely um, in the Senate. Do you uh, think they've learned from that in the past? Well, they, some have learned, not all have learned, and some lessons have to be relearned. Uh, I mean, the, the sort of, the sort of, archetype example of where this went awry for Senate Republicans was back in 2010 when you had people like Christine O'Donnell winning a nomination in Delaware but losing the general, Richard Murdoch winning the nomination, knocking off an incumbent in Indiana, losing the general, uh, Todd Akin winning in a uh, primary in Missouri but then losing the general, Sharon Angle winning the primary in Nevada, losing in the general. So there are a number of examples over time of, yeah, you can win the primary but you can't win the general. And you're seeing this play out. It's, it's sort of um, somewhat, I think, lazily referred to in the press as a fight between Trump and McConnell about the nomination. That's not always the case. They are actually united in a couple of states. And then there are some places where they haven't quite figured out what they're going to do. But for the Senate in particular, it really comes down to quality of nominee and do you nominate someone who is a credible general election candidate or do you, you know, nominate someone who is fantastic for the primary but then gets destroyed in the general? Sure, sure. How about you, Janice? Bring the Democratic perspective. Democrats, it is a lot the same. Who do you nominate is very important. In the House, the Democrats need to reelect those moderates. And right now, with redistricting and other things that are happening after the census from the last past year or so, it is, it is a difficult chore for Democrats to keep the House. The Senate, I think, is a little more of a toss-up than the House. But what Democrats need, they need good news. They need inflation to tamp down. They need COVID to go away or be better, better managed. They need no wars. They need lots of things that keep bad things out of the headlines because right now the president is associated with all the headlines. The president is a Democrat. So they, they really do need those things to happen. And for Democrats, most of them, I'm not certain it's all of them, but most of them think that enacting something like Build Back Better with broad domestic policy initiatives in it actually helps them in this election because it keeps their base energized. Otherwise, their base wonders, why did you elect Democrats in the first place? Thanks, Janice. So I'll ask you a next question again. What the heck is going to happen with BBV and tax legislation more generally? Isn't that the $64 billion question at this point? It, um, I still think they have a path forward. 
it is it is probably a little better than a toss-up right now as the as last year went on and this year goes on time is not their friend this just becomes more difficult for them but joe manchin the one outlier in the senate at the moment has given them a path forward if they choose to take it and that path forward is to spend on fewer proposals and make those proposals go longer so that it's not all crowded into spending in the first year or so as inflation is high right now. Instead, the taxes come in over time, the spending goes out over time, and you're not having to deal with extensions of these particular proposals over time. So I think they have a path forward. They have to rebuild a relationship with Joe Manchin not easy. In December, there was a lot of emotion involved when this legislation didn't make it. And since then, they've done the voting rights legislation, where he again was an outlier among Democrats. So they have some work to do here, but it is possible for them to do it. They would love to accomplish this before March 1, when the president gives his State of the Union address. I think that's a tall order, but they could be moving in that direction by then. They could spend much of February trying to get this through the Senate, whether they've made law or not. That would be big progress. I think that the progressives in time are working on getting themselves to agree to whatever Joe Manchin allows. It's still going to be pretty broad legislation, just not as broad as they wished. And last year was a year of diminished expectations for them. They had high expectations after that last election. So they have some work to do, and I think they will be working on it. In the meantime, they're resurrecting the U.S. Um, Competitiveness Act, the, the USICA bill that deals with superconductors and competition with China, et cetera. So they, and that's a bipartisan piece of legislation they're trying to move. Not clear that that will get ahead of BBB if it becomes successful, but there's that, and there are a number of other things that they've been working on. Thanks, Janice. Maybe row it on this one, your perspective, and at what point do people just start shutting down and focusing on midterm elections and getting reelected? Yeah, I think the challenge for Build Back Better is, I mean, Janice has charted the path forward, but that path forward, that only path forward, has been obvious since, like, fall or early winter of 2021. And so there's this question of, like, why didn't you go down that path uh, when it became immediately available rather than kind of dragging it out, continuing to pursue these things that just weren't plausible given the votes available um, in the Senate? And having dragged it into 2022, the challenge becomes, and this is the challenge of 2022 writ large, there is no action forcing deadline in 2022. There is no date on the calendar that you can look at and say, if you don't do it by this date, the following day, these 10 bad things happen, right? I don't know that Senator Manchin thinks March 1 is a politically meaningful date. It's politically meaningful for the president. And then, so there's the, when does Joe Manchin, Senator Manchin decide to engage and what does he view as a deadline for action? And then there's the other problem, which is at some point, as Janice pointed out, you're gonna end up with fewer things done permanently, which means some things aren't gonna get done at all. And the people who support those programs are going to have to go through the stages of grief and get to acceptance in order to be then voting for that bill. And that's not something that happens overnight. I think they are kind of ready there. They kind of know what's coming. Um, but there is still a process of getting to acceptance. And again, if you're a proponent of a proposal that's being left out of the bill, do you just blithely accept it? Or do you say, no, 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 we've got some more time. Let's, let's see if we can get Senator Manchin to agree to a version of this or a portion of this. You know, as you, as one of the stages of grief is bargaining. Like, how long does that bargaining last before they reach 
acceptance. And then, as you point out, Kevin, we, all this is happening is we're getting closer to the midterm elections. And at some point, and no one knows really when this happens, and that's the problem, at some point you wake up and you realize, oh, the deadline, the political deadline for action was two weeks ago. But we didn't realize we crossed it. And so this is what I think keeps Democratic leaders, the president, up at night, which is how long is this process going to take? And is it going to drag us past that sort of clock strikes midnight, right, we turn back into a pumpkin. The, the funny part about this is no one knows where the clock is or when it's going to strike midnight. It just happens, and you find out about it after the fact. So that's why there is these constant efforts to create a sort of false sense of urgency. I mean, it's a real urgency, but a false deadline. Like, we got to do it sure. by this day, not because anything bad happens the next day, but we just decided today is the day that we're going to make these tough calls. That's really hard. Yeah, no, that is. Uh, so I, I guess... You know, the only thing we could say is you'd like to think there would be at least some progress where we'd see in the news that some discussions are acting, actually taking place with, uh, with Senator Manchin and his team over the next few weeks, if not. Uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, this thing can't stay in legislative yeah. purgatory forever. It will at some point ascend up or down. Yep. Um, and the question is, how long do they continue this? And I think the, the first external signal that maybe they're giving up is if you see kind of key pieces of Build Back Better start to move to other pieces of legislation or really to have this thing stripped down from a $1.75 trillion bill to something like a trillion dollar bill, even less than a trillion dollar bill. I don't think we're near that yet, but that will be, a, that, if that happens, and that what happens, it will happen rather publicly, that will send a strong signal. Like they are really moving on from the bigger project and just trying to salvage whatever they can salvage before the midterms. Got it. Great. Great. So, so, hey, maybe before we uh, wrap up, pivoting to global, which is something and what's going on from a global policy perspective and more generally, right? That's something that's keeping a lot of executives up at night. As I think about it, you've got things that are going on at the OECD from a tax perspective, but there's also so much that's going on on the global scale looking at ESG and things there. What is Congress doing about this? What are we seeing Congress do? You could argue that, hey, this is stuff that's beyond the scope of Congress, but we know that's not true. There, there certainly are, are, is concern on Capitol Hill with respect to ESG. They certainly uh, are, are, uh, are aware of what's going on with the OECD. And as we look at BBB, the, what was going on with Guilty and so on and so forth there. So can you speak to that, Rohit? And then, Janice, I'd like to get your reaction. Yeah, so I think Congress is feeling a little put out at the moment that they haven't been adequately consulted on some of these kind of global negotiations that the administration is engaging. That is certainly true with respect to tax, um, where you're seeing increasingly um, sort of hostile might overstate it, but, you know, angst-ridden uh, uh, sort of letters from Congress to the administration um, where they are saying, look, just because you are telling us what's happening, that is not consultation. Notification is not consultation is maybe the, the watchword with respect yeah. to Congress. Like telling us what you're doing is different than asking us what we think about. Um, what you're doing. And so on tax in particular, you're seeing Republicans publicly complaining. I, you know, we hear a little bit privately, Democrats are also not thrilled with the way that this has been handled because the administration is making commitments that Congress will ultimately have to ratify. And by ratify, meaning in some cases by treaty in the Senate. Um, and without adequate consultation, uh, it's difficult to see what that path looks like. And I think that actually, ironically, um, undermines the administration's posture overseas because our trading partners, our negotiating partners, they understand the way that Congress works, right? This is not some new theory of the case. We've been doing this for a couple hundred years. They understand at some point you got to get congressional buy-in um, for these commitments. And if Congress is saying, mm -mm -mm, we're not doing this, uh, it makes it harder for the administration to make its negotiating posture stick. So I think it actually would behoove the administration to kind of work more closely with Congress uh, to get them on board so that the government is speaking with one voice rather than with these um, disparate voices. So, I mean, but that, and that's part of the challenge for business, right? You got the administration saying, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. And then you got at least half Capitol Hill saying, no, we're not. 
well, which is going to prevail, right? Is the administration going to be able to convince Congress? Are they going to be able to work around Congress? Sure. Are they going to have to modify um, their negotiating posture? And that, and I am deeply sympathetic because it is a real challenge. Who do you believe when you have two, you know, the unstoppable uh, force, the immovable object, when they hit each other, what happens? I mean, that's, that's the challenge of navigating in the current environment. You're right. And look, the rest of the world is watching. We saw even last week to where a few of the, uh, the countries in Eastern Europe uh, that are part of the EU said, look, we see what's going on here. Things don't seem to be moving very quickly, both uh, on pillar two as well as on pillar one. So you know what? We don't think that we should proceed with, uh, with, uh, with pillar two until we see that the U.S. is ready to do both pillar one and pillar two. So these things are going on yeah, like that. Yeah, that They're to watching. me was almost a little bit of the game of uh, say no without saying no. Yep. Let's wait for the U.S. Congress to act before we do our thing. That, uh, you know, for many things, especially things on which Congress yep. is not unified, that is a very clever way of saying, I don't think I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to take the blame. I'm going to point the finger at Absolutely. somebody else. So, uh, yeah. Janice, how about you? Well, first, I think the administration caused some of its own setbacks by overselling what the Congress was going to do to the OECD and overselling to the Congress what the OECD was going to do. I viewed it as a very positive thing for business that those House Democrats limited what the administration had proposed on the pillar two worldwide minimum tax to something that was more consistent with what they were hearing directly from the OECD about where it might go. I think on pillar one, the Congress is still uncertain. I would, I would say the jury's out on that. They know they don't like these digital services taxes from other countries, having a, a boatload of those that all are a little bit different. They thought pillar one might help with that some, but I'm not certain they're absolutely sold on the administration's proposals on pillar one. And many of them, Democrats and Republicans, don't like to be told that they won't be involved in changing tax treaties, that there are other ways the administration will approach it. So still a lot to be learned on the OECD and European efforts. They do still tend to find consensus on things in Congress like human rights violations worldwide and other things, especially if China is involved in that. And with ESG, they appear to me right now, and partly this is because the Congress is set up with committees that deal with different issues. They're dealing with that in a piecemeal fashion. I would say the energy related items, both the tax items and the more direct spending proposals in the Build Back Better focused on energy and climate change were a direct response in much of that area. And in other things, they're dealing more discreetly there in those particular areas. Thank you, Rohit. Thank you, Janice, for joining me today. So a note to our viewers, a link to our 2022 outlook is included in the description of this episode. Be on the lookout for more episodes on the trade and the economic outlook. And until then, thank you for spending this time with us and take care. Thanks everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed this Policy On Demand interview with Janice Mays, Rohit Kumar, and Kevin Lovingston. A link to the video version of this conversation is included in the description of this episode, as well as a link to the 2022 Outlook. Stay with Policy On Demand and PwC's Tax Readiness webcast series for the latest insight and analysis on changes coming from Washington and around the world. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. 
please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.